I want to start off, though, by laying a foundation that Nehemiah jumps off of that we will see here in just a, a minute. We're going to be talking about being involved in the work of God. And what happens when you see a work of God that needs to be done, how do you respond? And I want us to be careful as we approach this text because some people will get in their mind, I've got to do something, and they'll go after their own heart's desire and then run to God and ask Him to bless their endeavors. But what we want to do is see where God is at work and then join Him in His work. And there's three passages that I think Nehemiah lives out. So if you're taking notes, if you have your phones, write these three passages down. The first one is Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Psalm 1, 1 through 3. We read, Blessed is the one who does not walk in the step of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the company of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and meditates on this law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do, prospers. So you're going to see a pattern in these three passages. This is Psalm 1, 1 through 3. You see someone who's consumed with the Word of God, does the Word of God, then finds success. Another time is Joshua. Joshua chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. So you have Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Now you have Joshua 1, 7 and 8. Joshua has just taken over leadership of God's people. This is God's word to him. Start with verse 7. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave to you. Do not turn from it from the right or to the left, that you may have success wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it, then you will be prosperous and successful. Did you see the pattern? Meditate on the Word day and night. Do it. Find success. Well, you say, well, Brown, those are two Old Testament passages. Well, James 1, 25. James chapter 1, verse 25. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Do you see the pattern for Christian living? Know the Word, do the Word, find success. It's not come up with our own game plan, do what we want to do, and hope God blesses us. It's know God through His Word, know His promises, cling to His promises, follow Him, and then watch how God blesses. If you, go to, if you go to a pool, I'm trying to think of Randolph. I think Randolph used to have the deep end with the diving board. You go to the diving board, you jump off, and you know when you jump off of that diving board, you're going to land in the deep end of the pool. Coney Island used to have this. They had the high dives. There's not too many high dives out there anymore. But you know as you go to that diving board, when you jump, you're going to land in the deep end of the pool. And what I want you to see is the Word of God is the diving board that we jump off into the pool of the work of God. 
the word informs our work. Just like when you go to a diving board, you're going to land in the pool. When you jump off the word of God, you're going to land in the work of God. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does. We have to build off of this foundation. So here's my question. Do you know the word of God? Because if you don't know the word of God, you might miss out on the work of God. And so I want to build off of that foundation. As we dig in, I want you to see a Nehemiah moment. We'll read the first three verses of Nehemiah chapter 1. A Nehemiah moment. Starts out, verse 1, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakalah, in the month of Kislev, 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So they went to the city where God's people belong, and here Nehemiah is getting a report. Verse 3, They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. Doesn't look good for the people of God. And that's what I call a Nehemiah moment. The reason I say that, all of us have been placed in a moment in time. We have these few years in a certain place, our location, to glorify God. And this was Nehemiah's moment, but you and I also have a moment. And I think when you look around, you might see that the wall is down and that the gates are burned. And the question is, how will you respond to your moment? And I, I want to go back and, and encourage just a, a little bit. Does anyone know William Carey in the room? William Carey was a trailblazer when it came to being a missionary. And he preached a sermon titled, Expect Great Things from God and Attempt Great Things for God. And I thought this was interesting for this commentary about this sermon. It was in the late 18th century. None of you guys were around. But this was his time. This is what was happened. He was trying to wake the church up that was complacent in missions. And as he saw it, the fact that Christians were not attempting great things for God indicated that they were not expecting him to do great things in them and through them. They thought they were living in a day of small times. Their lack of action showed that they believed they were living in a day of small things. Carrie's sermons challenged them to think bigger and expect greater things from God. If they did, they would begin to step out in faith and take risks for the cause of God. Christ does that characterize your life Do you expect great things from God and I'm not talking about a big house and a nice car I'm talking about enjoying the presence of God and then as you walk with Jesus watch what he does in and through you I don't know about you but I'm asking God for some pretty big things I don't expect this city to remain the same because our people are here. God is in His people. 
And His people changes places. And this is our city, and this is our moment. How will we respond to our Nehemiah moment? Those who know God deeply will be the ones who follow God faithfully. You have to know the character of God. You've got to know His promises. Because then you'll walk in faith. And this is Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11.6 says this, Without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Does that describe you this morning? Are you a man or are you a woman of faith? Do you believe that He will reward those who earnestly follow after Him? That's a promise given to you from His Word. And you don't have to doubt whether you'll be rewarded or not. The only question is, will you earnestly seek Him? Because all of those who seek Him will be rewarded. You see this again and again in Hebrews 11. Noah, Noah trusted God, not his neighbors. He built an ark. And my man didn't live by a lake. Didn't live by an ocean. But he saved his family because his eyes were on God and not his neighbors. Or what about Abraham? He left his home not knowing where he was going, but he was looking forward. The Bible says in Hebrews 11, he was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. He trusted God. He got busy with the work of God. Sarah. Now listen, I don't know how many 90-year-olds we have in the building, but I know this. When we had Dia, they said we were old. Right? It was an at-risk pregnancy. And I was a little offended, and my wife was a little offended. A geriatric pregnancy is what they called it. And I thought, the nerve, they got to fix labels. Well, Sarah, Sarah in Hebrews 11 was 90, and check this out. She had a baby because she considered God faithful who had made the promise. Age is just a number to our God. Or, we keep reading, Moses, his parents hid him for three months after he had been born, even though the king had made an edict that they should be put to death because they feared God more than they feared the king. Moses chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as greater value than the treasures in Egypt. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. You want to walk in faith, you have to know God. And when you know God, watch out, because you will walk in faith. What about God's people? How much trust do you have to... You better know God when you come to a body of water. And let's say this is the water, and all of a sudden there's a, an aisleway split between this Red Sea. And the walls of the water go up as tall as this building. And Moses is like... Let's go. You better have faith in God if you're going to walk through. And that's exactly what God's people did. They walked through on dry ground. Because they had faith in God, they got busy with the work of God. Then you have David who took on a giant because he trusted in God instead of his own ability. You have Paul, who knew he was going to be mistreated in city after city after city. And when I say mistreated, he's going to be locked up and beaten and eventually be put to death. But his eyes were on Jesus and not his suffering. When you look at most of the disciples, all of them were put to death for their faith. 
And yet they kept walking with Christ through the suffering. Men and women of faith, that's who fills the church. And their trust in God fuels the work of God. And our God hasn't changed. And neither has his church. Hebrews 12, 1 says this, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. You and I have a race to run. Nehemiah had a race to run, and he ran it. And I want you to see three things in how he ran this race. He was called to a work, and I want you to see prayer. I want you to see planning. And I want you to see how he pursued God. The Nehemiah moment, I mentioned this earlier. You're like, Brown, there's no walls for me to build. Like Covington doesn't have a wall around the city. Guess you can count the Licking River flood wall. We don't have to build that, thankfully. It's already there. So, so what are you talking about? The, the wall's down and the gates are burned. This is what I'm talking about. Might be individually. Your life's a mess this morning. And you play the part. You can show up for a service here and there. But your life's a mess. The walls are destroyed and the gates are burned and you know it. And yet God has a work for you. It could be a marriage. It could be parenting. It could be a child. The walls are in rubble. And the smoke from the fire of the gates still extending to the sky but God has a work for you could be at work you're struggling day in and day out you're trying to figure out the bills you have no idea what God is doing with you at your workplace the wall is down and the gates are burnt that's exactly when God calls you to a work could be at school I know there's some flames at Holmes High School right now it's not a very fun place to be a student or be a teacher. It doesn't have a great reputation right now. The walls are down and the gates are burnt. And yet God is about to do a work. The question is, how will his people respond? We need a Nehemiah today. Nehemiah got this word. He was a cupbearer for the king. You know what the cupbearer gets to do? Taste everything the king enjoys. Nehemiah wasn't starving. He had it made. But do you know he was in exile? He was a captive in a foreign land. But while he was in exile, his eyes always stayed on his God. And he never got used to the comfort of this world. He was consumed with the glory of his God. We desperately need some Nehemiahs today. Thirteen years earlier, Ezra led a group of captives back to Judah, and Haggai had a word to say to this people. Now, I don't expect you guys to remember Ezra, but we spent a lot of time there. We made it through the book. They built, rebuilt the temple. But I want you to hear what Haggai told the people when they went back with Ezra. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. They're saying now is not the time. It's not a time to do the work of God. 
Keep reading. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in paneled houses while the house remains, while my house remains in ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, yet harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. You see, the people of God were busy, but they were spinning their wheels. They were wasting their time. They weren't about the work of God. And therefore, they were wasting the moment that God had given them. The quickest way to waste the time that God has blessed you with is to spend it on yourself. Consumed with your comfort and your glory. That's how you waste the moment God's given you. So Haggai says, uh-uh, this isn't going to work. The people were saying, now this is not the time to build. Don't worry, tomorrow's a better day to start the building of the temple. Don't worry about the things of God. Get your stuff in order. Keep working. Provide for your family. Don't worry about God. And yet God says, no, today is the day. Haggai 1, 7 and 8, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. That's the challenge this morning. Give careful thought to your ways. Look at your life. What are you spending your life on this morning? Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. That's how you take advantage of the moment God has given you. You get busy working and the things God called us to so he might be glorified. And you want to know what? When that happens, you'll find your joy. You'll find your purpose. You'll find peace. In verse 12, we see that the people obeyed the voice of the Lord. In verse 13, God promises to be with the people. And then in verse 14, God stirs the spirit of the people so that they begin to work on the house of the Lord. And we know they finished the temple. Isn't it amazing what God's people can do when they remember that God is with them, when God stirs their heart and they get to work? Things that they thought was not today happens today. This was their moment. That was their time, and that was their place. In the late 18th century, William Carey preached what ultimately was the most influential sermon that he had ever given, expect great things and attempt great things for God. You want to know why he preached that sermon? There was a guy that came up to him at a conference and said, hey, when God wants to save the heathen, he won't bother asking you or asking me. He goes, sit down and let someone else talk. That was the attitude in the pews in William Carey's day. You know, that was his time. That was his moment. That was his day. But you know, we've got this time. And we've got this moment, and we don't know how long this will last. Right? Just turned 40. I hope I've got 40 more years. I don't know. God might call me home today. But I know this. For as long as he gives me breath... I want to be busy about the work he's called me to. And I hope that's true of you. Today is the day. Our moment is now. Let us be found faithful. Let's look at how Nehemiah responded to his Nehemiah moment. S.D. Gordon said, You can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. You can't do more than pray until you've prayed, but after that, Didn't get to work. 
I think a lot of times we try to do things in our own strength, you'll be frustrated. Prayer is not something that we go through the motions on. In prayer, you have the audience of God, a God who hears and a God who responds. That's exactly what Nehemiah did. When you look at verse 4, it says, When I heard these things, all this bad news coming, the city's still in shambles. When I heard these things, look at what he did. I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah knows how to respond when God begins to do a work. You know God is about to do something when God's people get serious about prayer. You see, number one, he clings to God's character and promises in his prayer. Verse 5, he says, Lord, the God of heaven. You see, Nehemiah knows he's in a faraway land, but he knows he serves an awesome God who knows no boundaries, who hears him in a distant land because he's the God of heaven. In verse 6, he says, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant. He knows that God hears him. Why? Because of the word. In Deuteronomy 7, 9, it says, Therefore, know that the Lord your God is God. He is faithful, keeping his covenant love to a thousand generations, those who love him and keep his commandments. That's who Nehemiah is calling out to. He knows exactly who he's talking to. In verse 6, it says, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to the prayer of your servant. Even in exile, God gives the promise for those who draw near, I will hear. Verse 8 and 9, it says, Remember the words you spoke to Moses. Nehemiah is praying and he's speaking the promises that God has made to his people. He's saying, God, I know you're faithful and just and you'll keep your promises. And then in verse 10, he says, The people you've redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Over at Oakland Avenue, we built this Lego wall for our nursery. And it only caused a couple black eyes as kids ran into the corner. We fixed that. But when the wall goes down, it wasn't a hard thing to build it up. You know, when, from Nehemiah's perspective and the people that had lived Back in the promised land, I imagine seeing that wall day in and day out was a huge task. They're probably thinking, how are we going to get enough resources? We don't have enough people to build it. We don't have enough timber to build it. It was a monumental task if they were relying on their own resources. But you know what? To God, it was easier to build that wall than it is for you and I to rebuild the Lego wall at Oakland Avenue. And right there, you see Nehemiah get that. You redeemed us with your mighty strength, your mighty hand. You did it for us long ago, and you can do it again. When you pray, cling to the character and the promises of God. He hears you. Number two, confess sin. Verses six and seven says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws that you have given your servant Moses. Sin will keep you from the work of God. It'll rob you from a red-hot fire that fuels mission. 
Sin will destroy that in your heart. So if you're cold to the things of God, look for sin in your life. We see in Hebrews 12 too, sin entangles and keeps you from running the race God has marked out for you. And so what's the answer? In Hebrews, it's throw it off. Later on in 1 John 1, 7 through 9, it says, but if we walk in light as he is in light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. That's how our sin is dealt with. We keep reading. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Every one of us in the room, our biggest problem is not something out there. It's not someone that you know. Our biggest problem is the sin in our own lives. My biggest problem is my own sin. And now here's the promise. Verse 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. How does he do that? Through the blood of Christ. My sin is paid for. I don't want to live in sin. I want to confess it and turn from it and know that Jesus rescues me from that. You cannot be busy about the work of God living in sin. So throw it off. And then finally, commit to obedience. Verse 9 says, But if you return to me and obey my commands, that's the promise of God. Are you obeying the word of God? the word of God the final authority in your life it'll be an amazing thing when you know the word and you do the word and you walk in obedience what God does through you so that's how Nehemiah responds to the moment that the city is in shambles he prays but not only does he pray he also plans you see this in chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 Nehemiah 1 1 starts in the month of Kislev anybody know what month that is I didn't. I don't have that calendar. But it's around November, December. And then in 2-1, Nehemiah 2-1, the month of Nisan, that's between March and April. So it's about four months. Nehemiah hears the news. What's he doing for four months? Four months is a long time. He's praying and he's planning. Check this out. This is, this is pretty cool. When he goes in before the king, and now listen, he's the cupbearer. And there's a lot of rules if you're that close to the king. You can't have a bad day before the king. You get put to death. But Nehemiah has a plan. He goes in, and the king goes, what's wrong with you? This is nothing but sadness of heart. What do you want? And listen to Nehemiah's response. What is it you want? Verse 5, let me go back and rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. He had a plan. And it involved himself. Hey, let me go back. Isn't that amazing? Nehemiah had a pretty good spot. He'd rather risk his life going back and being involved in the work of God. Then you keep reading, verse 7. He asked for letters from the king to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide safe travel to Judah. But he's not done asking. The queen asked, how long will this journey take and when will you get back? And so he set a time. In verse 8. Letter from the king to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so that he could get timber to build beams for the gates in the city wall. This was a man with a plan. Now, why was he planning? Because he knew God heard his prayers. You want to know what the awesome part is? 
I think Nehemiah already knew the answer before the king gave his answer. He knew God was doing something. And so he says, hey, I'm going to be ready. When God moves, I'm going to be ready. Now, I wanted to give a little bit of warning here. Our deacons meeting, our budget meetings, I like to read this verse. This is Proverbs 16.3 and Proverbs 16.9. It says, commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. And then he says, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And so we want to plan to the glory of God, but we hold those loosely. Because God might move the direction. But it's not wrong to plan. It's not like Wile E. Coyote. Right? And eventually you feel bad for this guy. He has plan after plan after plan. And you know they'll never work. You know the roadrunner will somehow get away. The bomb will go off on the coyote. The coyote will fall off the cliff. The train will hit the coyote. Like you know this is happening, so you think planning is futile. Not so when it comes to the people of God. Not so when it comes to the people of God. But then, you also need to bathe those plans in prayer. Early on, this was 2013. 2013, we were actually in relationship with you guys, Ashland Avenue. We had been speaking. We were getting ready to, to come and, and have worship services here at, at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And there was a group, a church group, coming up from Tennessee. Now, the hills of Tennessee are great, but it's radically different than what you see in Covington. And the leader of the group says, hey, uh, we want to help with your church plant. We, we like what you're doing. Uh, we want to get involved. And I was about to give him ways that he could help. But he said, this is what we can offer you. We've got a group that puts on a great puppet show. And we're coming to Covington. We want to help you. Now listen, I'm not anti-puppets. <laughs> but as my beloved friend Josh Farmer puts it, man, you don't do puppets in the hood. <laughs> and he was right. He was right. And so what happened? You want to know what happened? They came up, and they did some of the other things that we asked them to help with, but they were determined to do this puppet show. You want to know how many people showed up for the puppet show? Zero. Zero. Because if a kid comes over to watch a puppet show with a bunch of out-of-town, all-white church that they don't know, they will not trust him. And like it or not, we knew that. And we tried to explain it, but they had their plans, and they were going to do it. Now, this is important. When we set plans, it better not be our agenda. It has to be God's agenda. And this is exactly what Nehemiah was doing. Fasting, mourning, praying, and then saying, God, I'll go. We'll ask this group for all of the lumber. We'll ask these people to do the work. These are the plans. Bless them if you want to. That's how you set up planning. So, uh, by the way, the group did make it to a Cincinnati Reds game, and they did go to Kings Island. It wasn't a wasted trip, but I learned quickly I'm not a huge puppet fan anymore. 
So you pray, right? Clinging to the character and promises of God, confessing sin, commit to obedience. You plan. And I love this. This is exactly what Nehemiah did. Right? He prayed knowing that God had heard him. He planned knowing that God had heard him. But then he pursued God knowing that God heard him. I think sometimes we get stuck in praying and planning and never doing. Guys, the blessing is in the doing. And what you see later on in this chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 11 through 20, you can follow along as I read. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I sat out during the night with few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. That's key to planning. God stirs his heart. We need this done. He's going where God has moved him. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding. By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal wall to the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. He shows up and it's exactly how it was described. Go on, skip on down to verse 17. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. So he's talking to the people. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in this disgrace. He's inviting people to join him on the work. Verse 18, I also told them about the gracious hand of God that was on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. And then you hear about some opposition. But Nehemiah keeps his eyes on God. Whenever you pursue God, there will be opposition. Get busy working. There's a little verse at the end of 16 that I thought was interesting. It says, The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as of yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or any others who would be doing the work. You see, Nehemiah saw something before the people saw it. He saw how the work would be done before the workers even knew they were workers. You want to know what's an encouragement? When you see what God can do in and through someone, and then you speak it into their lives. And I'm not talking about flattery. I'm not talking about exaggeration. I'm talking about you see the hand of God on a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, and you say, hey, I think God's doing something in your life. You might want to get busy doing this work because God's hand's on you. That is an encouragement. I love the response of the people. Let us start rebuilding. So they began a good work. You remember William Carey? When he was told to sit down and be quiet? You want to know why it was so easy to tell him to sit down and be quiet? He wasn't much. Never made it to high school, never made it to college. He had an illness which caused him to lose his hair in his early 20s. He had a wig for about 20 years, but then when he sailed for India, he threw that thing in the ocean. He failed at his first attempt to be ordained in the church. So he's trying to be a leader in the church, and he failed. And they kept failing him for two years. You want to know why? They said he was a boring preacher. You might as well have called someone's baby ugly. When you're a pastor and you say, ah, you're boring and you never make it, that's William Carey. 
That's the guy who says expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. That's the guy who changed the game in missions. Listen, listen to what, what he did. He goes, I can plot, he wrote later. I can persevere for any definite pursuit. He was a plotter. And I want you to see what I mean by that. He was on the missionary field for 41 years and never came back home. After seven years of missionary labor, December of 1800, Carey baptized his first new believer, Krishna Pal. You think it mattered to him if William Carey was obedient? Yep. He wasn't sitting down waiting for somebody else to go. He went, and it made an eternal difference in Krishna Pal's life. Two months later, he published his first Bengali New Testament. You see, we have Bibles and translations in English. We are spoiled. There are people right now that do not have the Word of God in their language. William Carey says, that now is my time. This is the moment that God's given me. I'm going to be faithful. By his death, after 41 years of ministry, there were around 700 new believers. He had translated the complete Bible into six languages. Like, we have a hard time reading through the Bible once in our lifetime. My man translated it completely into six different languages. And portions of the Bible in 29 other languages. He founded the Sarampore College, which was the first Christian college in Asia. He worked for social reform in, in India. Talking about the abolition of infanticide and widow burning and assisted suicide. And he ignited a worldwide missionary movement. Why? Because he understood his moment. And he said, this is my time. This is the place God has planted me. I'm going to get to work. What's your response today? What is your response? And like I said, it could be individual. It could be uh, relational. It might be with a mom, a dad. It might be in the marriage relationship. It might be with a child. Work, school, church. But for me, it's this city. Our city's hurting. Just this past week, we have two students that are robbing people, shooting people. School's struggling, and if you were there, it would be an embarrassment for you to see what is happening. And so we can say, hey, you know what? It's not our problem. What does that to do with me? I can say, you know what? I can go get a teaching job somewhere else. Let somebody else worry with that. Or, or, what about this? What if God placed us here for this exact reason? That Covington becomes a place where missionaries are sent out across the world. What if Holmes High School becomes a place where there are pastors going into other cities showing them how to follow Jesus in the city what if this city is changed from being known for darkness for being known for light you know God's not done doing work now is the time now is our moment let us be faithful amen and so when we go and we look at Nehemiah 1 and 2, it's easy to come up with a list. Okay, my Nehemiah moment, I need to, to pray, plan, and pursue. But I want you to see this. You want to know why Nehemiah is written? 
It's part of God's redemptive history in the Bible. And you know what? You and I, we don't need help with a wall that's been broken down. We needed help with a wall that's been placed up. You see, our sin separated us from God. Forever away from God. And yet Jesus comes, and we sang a song earlier today talking about the veil that had been torn. Here's the awesome news. There's been a greater leader than Nehemiah that has come to rescue us out of our disgrace and out of our shame. All of those things that bring you and me embarrassment have been covered on the cross. Hebrews talks about how Jesus came once and for all to die for our sin. And that wall of hostility has been removed by the blood of the Lamb. And before you can begin a work for God, you've got to know the Son of God. Did you know that Jesus loves you so much that he gave up heaven, laid aside his glory to come to this earth, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for you and for me, so that when you and I couldn't get to God, he came to us. And that after three days, he burst out of the grave, saving forever those who call on him. And maybe that's you today. I do know this. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. The altar is open. You can pray at your pew. Maybe there's sin in your life that you need to confess. Maybe there are some promises in the word that you need to cling to. Maybe there's a work that God is laying on our hearts that we need to commit to. But I do know this, God's moving and working. Do not ignore him today. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I pray you fill this place up with your spirit. Lord, I pray that you move. I pray that you save. I pray that you lead, that you guide. Lord, I pray for hearts that respond to you. So, Father, I have no idea where and with who you're moving, but I know you are. And so I pray for a faithful response. Lord, help us see that you are a God who hears and that you have called us for this time and this place. And so, Lord, I pray that we expect great things from you and that we attempt great things for your glory. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.